Morning, church. Hope that you guys are doing well. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1? 1 John chapter 1 will be in uh, the first four verses uh, of this chapter. And I'll actually read uh, this passage a little bit later on uh, during the sermon. I'm going to spend the first part just kind of framing uh, our new sermon series uh, this morning. So let's pray together and then we'll uh, jump in. God, we're so thankful for another Sunday to celebrate and praise Jesus that he is still alive today. God, we thank you that we can place our hope and our trust on a God who is reigning, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we're so thankful that you have given us the gift of the church to be able to gather with other believers, to find encouragement when we're struggling, and to remind one another of the powerful truths of the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would be clear this morning, that you'd help me to preach with clarity and with conviction, and above all, to make Jesus compelling. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, I lost my temper big time at work yesterday, and I don't mean that random curse word slipped out of my mouth. I snapped and dropped the F-bomb on a coworker. I can't get it out of my head that I may have committed the unpardonable sin. Am I still saved? I watched pornography again last night. I'll go a few weeks or a few months without it, but then I fall back in it again. I feel so dirty. Will God ever love me again? Have I lost any opportunity for ministry in my church? What do I do now? I'm on my third marriage, and I'm not sure this one is going to last much longer. People at church treat me like a leper. I've asked God for forgiveness so many times that I've lost count. Do you think God's fed up with me and finally done? There isn't a day that goes by that anxiety and fear fill my heart. I feel so enslaved to worry that it's hard to read the Bible and believe God's promises. Makes me question if the Holy Spirit even lives inside of me. Was the prayer I prayed to receive Christ real? These stories and many more are not just make-believe, they come from people, real people, who are paralyzed with the fear that they may have lost their salvation. They're wondering, did I cross a line from which there's no return? Have I committed one too many sins where I've lost God's love? Have I wasted all my chances at eternal life? These are real questions with real issues behind them. What do you do? when you come across a question related to your salvation? What do you do when you have a a thought that comes in your mind and into your heart that might hijack the joy that you have in Christ? Well, part of the reason why we're in this sermon series is to address those issues, is to take on these questions head on through the book of 1 John. We're gonna walk through this letter over the next several weeks, and the title of our sermon series is called Be Sure. And we're going to be looking at the doctrine of assurance or the confidence that's given to a believer who is truly converted and in Christ. This doctrine is unbelievably important. It's incredibly practical, and yet I think it's it's vastly misunderstood and undertaught. And so this morning, we're going to eventually look at the first four verses, maybe towards the end of our time together. I'll point out 
our first mark that you're truly a Christian. But the first half here, I just want to set up the whole sermon series and kind of set the table, if you will, and frame why we're going to be in this book over the next couple of weeks. I hope it's helpful, helpful to you. So here are the four. Four reasons to study 1 John. The first one is this, is that many Christians have what I would describe a misplaced confidence, misplaced confidence. There are some Christians who might walk around confident in their relationship with the Lord, but if you press them a little bit, their their confidence is generated mostly because they're comparing themselves with others instead of looking into God's word. And when you compound that with kind of the, the increasing blurriness that exists between nominal Christianity and those who are genuinely saved, you've got confusion about what it means to really be a Christian. Nominal Christianity is those who claim to be a Christian just in title, and yet they're not practicing Christianity. They're not bearing fruit. They're not uh, daily repenting. And so you kind of lump these two groups of people together under the banner of Christianity, and and it brings confusion about what it means to be a true Christian. And from time to time, we can fall into this tendency of comparing ourselves to our neighbor who goes to church once or twice a year and lives an immoral life, and we can think to ourselves, man, I'm doing pretty well. Like, I'm, I'm a good Christian, and some of the confidence can come about through that comparison instead of actually looking to what God's word has to say. And so I hope part of this sermon series Um, gives us a firm foundation into what it means to have confidence in our walk with the Lord. Number two, the the second uh, reason why we're in this text is I believe uncertainty about the future hijacks joy in the present. Uncertainty about the future hijacks joy in the present. Look, there's not a whole lot of things that you and I do well in when there's ambiguity and uncertainty, especially about the future like eternal life. That uncertainty can rob us of joy today. That when we're obsessing about whether or not we're truly saved, when we're repeatedly questioning our need to give our lives over to Jesus for the 60th time, or we're just being plagued with constantly doubting our salvation, that that all can lead to a joyless, anxiety-ridden, powerless life in God. And not having assurance that you're saved, not having that confidence that God wants us to have, it impacts everything. It impacts the type of friend that you are, the type of employee that you are, the type of parent or spouse or brother and sister in Christ. Thirdly, third reason that we're uh, in this book is objective and subjective knowledge uh, are both really important. And what I mean by that, like objective knowledge is Um, stating the fact that Columbus is the capital of Ohio. Okay, subjective knowledge is um, that cup of of water's cold. Okay, It's, it's cold to me, but it may not be cold to you. So there's objective and subjective realities, and the same is true spiritually as it relates to our condition in Christ. And there are some questions about ourselves that are easy to answer, and then there are other questions about ourselves that are harder to answer. For example, if you asked me, Chris, are you, are you married? I would say, yeah, I, I'm fairly certain that I'm married. I can show you my wedding ring. I can show you my wedding certificate. I can introduce you to my wife. I'm very certain that I'm married. But if you asked me, are you a good husband? Now that would be a harder question to answer. 
Like I'd have to uh, test the sincerity of my heart. I'd have to analyze my fruit and my good works. I'd have to look at other things that, uh, that would help me answer that question. So there's some questions that are easier to answer than others. And so when you look at the question, are you really a Christian? Does that fall under the objective category where there are things independent of you that can help answer that question? Or does it fall under more of the subjective category where you have to test the sincerity of your heart? You have to analyze fruit. You have to look at good works versus, uh, versus bad works. And this sermon series, I think, will show us that both are important in order to have biblical assurance that there are objective realities in God's word that Christ has done for us, and there's a subjective reality that we live in and live out every day, and we need both to have the type of assurance that God wants us to have. Fourthly, the fourth reason why we're in this uh, book is the doctrine of assurance is largely undertaught and I would say misapplied. Now, this is true throughout Christianity, but I think it's true even in our church, mainly because of my, my fault being. And we can spend so much time and energy uh, kind of talking about people meeting Jesus for the first time, becoming saved in Jesus, or we can spend so much time just making sure that Christians are busy with Christian activities and Bible studies and small groups and outreach and service that we don't spend enough time helping Christians understand if they really are saved and having the assurance that comes from that. Furthermore, we're actually commanded in Scripture to make sure that we have assurance and confidence in the Lord. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, be diligent in confirming your calling and your election, your salvation in Christ. And so I want to spend some time over the next couple of weeks looking at what that means to have that type of confirmation about who you are in Christ. Yet furthermore, I would say the doctrine of assurance is misapplied because it's reduced to only impacting Christians. We're gonna look at the doctrine of assurance throughout 1 John, and I believe that it impacts different categories of people. And these categories show up at our church on a weekly basis. I think there's four categories uh, that, that the doctrine of assurance impacts and speaks into, okay? The first one is the fully assured, that these are people who are saved and they know it. That they're walking with Jesus, they have confidence in the Lord, that they're not really struggling with this whole idea of, of having assurance. And so if that's you this morning, I hope that this letter just further gives you a, a level of confidence in the Lord and that Jesus is all the sweeter to you. Category number two is the doubting believer. That these are people who are saved and yet may not know it. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you probably have gone through a season like this where you think that you're saved, but am I really? Like, did I, did I pray that prayer correctly? Like, do I have enough fruit? Did I, do I understand grace? Have I repented enough? And all of those questions, if they're 
not handled rightly can actually paralyze us in fear and take away the confidence and the assurance that God wants us to have. And so I hope that this sermon series gives you a confidence in Jesus like you've never had before. The third category that this doctrine speaks into is actually the conscious unbeliever. These are people who are not saved and know it. And if you're here this morning and this fits you, we are so glad that you're here. And and we hope and and trust that the Lord uses this book and this sermon series to, to draw you to Jesus. But what you will find throughout this letter is that there is an indescribable peace that comes from knowing with certainty that God loves you and that your eternity is safe in his hands. And our prayer is that you would see that and that you would want that and that you would come in faith in Jesus. Now the fourth category, and I think the, probably the most dangerous place to be in, is the falsely assured. That these are people who are unsaved and yet they do not know it. These are people who are hanging their hat, their, their whole eternity on maybe just a prayer that they prayed and yet there's no visible fruit or repentance in their life. The Bible speaks a lot about those who are falsely assured. You think of Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus says, on that day, many will come up to me and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the good things that I've done for you, let me into heaven. And Jesus is going to respond, he's gonna say, look, I I never knew you away from me. And the reality of that, that warning is that there are those who look the part, who might even do religious activity, and yet they are far from Jesus. And that is one of the most dangerous places to be in because sin is so deceptive. So I hope that this series brings a level of conviction, it brings repentance, and ultimately it brings joy in the Lord. And so no matter what category that you fit in or what category that you would even describe yourself in, this book is for you this morning. And so look, before we jump into uh, the first four verses, I wanna give you just a couple helpful data points about John and about the letter of 1 John, almost from a 60,000 foot level. John is uh, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He wrote 2 John, 3 John, also wrote the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John. And John most likely wrote the book of 1 John in the latter half of that last decade in the first century. Okay, so he was hanging around Ephesus and wrote this letter, and most likely this letter was circulated among the surrounding churches. Now, John has a tendency throughout his writings to include the purpose for why he wrote the letter towards the end of it, okay? Uh, He doesn't wanna kind of give anything away in the beginning, and so he kind of slides it in at the end just to bring further clarity. And so we looked at chapter five, verse 13 last week, about the purpose of 1 John, but he does this in other writings. You look at the Gospel of John, for example, in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay, so that's, the purpose of the Gospel of John, that he's highlighting the works of Jesus, the person of Jesus, so that you may believe in Jesus and have life. And so then you get to 1 John, and it's almost like part two. It's 
It's almost like, okay, if you believe in Jesus, let me write about how you know that you believe in Jesus, how you can have assurance that you believe in Jesus and have eternal life. Okay, so the aim of 1 John is confidence, confidence that what Jesus accomplished on the cross, he accomplished for you and how you actually know that to be true. Now that's important because John is writing to a church or to a group of churches here where a division has occurred. That there is uh, a form of Gnosticism that crept into, uh, into these churches and was causing a schism uh, between them. Now Gnosticism is the belief that Jesus's humanity was evil and yet Jesus's divinity was good. Okay, so it downplays the incarnation, downplays the, the flesh and the body of Jesus. And Gnostics actually believe that there was kind of a special knowledge that you needed in order to be saved. You needed kind of a special anointing, a special experience from God. And if you didn't have that, you, were, you weren't really truly a Christian, okay? So John is writing uh, to kind of rebuke them and show the true followers of Jesus how they can know with certainty that they are the true followers of Jesus. Now, we'll look at other topics uh, throughout uh, our time together. We'll look at, um, at the role of loving others. We'll look at what an appropriate relationship with the world should look like. We'll look at the difference between false repentance and true repentance. We'll look at good, good works and fruits and how many good works do you need in order to be saved. And we'll look at perseverance in the faith and other topics. Look, I'm, I'm pumped to be in this. I'm really excited. This is gonna be, I hope, very, very helpful for us um, as a church, all right? Now, let's dive into uh, the first four verses of John chapter one, and I'll give us our first signpost that you know that you are saved. All right, it's chapter one, verse one. Word of God reads this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let me give you the first signpost, and then I'll, uh, I'll show you uh, where this is in the first couple of verses. So first way that you know that you are saved is if you belong to Jesus-centered fellowship with other believers. Jesus-centered fellowship with other believers. Now, you'll notice that I'm describing the kind of fellowship that we are to have with other Christians in order to be a marker in your life that you are truly saved. It's not any kind of fellowship, but it's Jesus-centered or Jesus-shaped. Now, you should be asking yourself the question, well, what does that even look like? What does that mean to have Jesus-centered fellowship with other believers? Well, John helps us understand that by showing us four descriptions about who Jesus actually is. That if we want a Jesus-centered fellowship, we have to ask the question, well, who is Jesus. And let me point out these four descriptions uh, briefly here. Number one, 
John shows us that Jesus has existed eternally with the Father. That verse two, that last phrase there makes it clear that Jesus was with the Father. And then the beginning of verse one shows us that they were together from the beginning. Now this should remind you of a similar way that John began another one of his writings. That the Gospel of John starts out this way in a very similar fashion. Chapter one, verse one, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That the internality of Jesus is a large theme throughout John's writings. He wants us to know Jesus was with the Father from eternity past, that they were equal, and everything else kind of flows out of that truth. Now secondly, John describes Jesus as the word of life. Okay, if you're familiar with some of John's writings, you'll know that the word and life are two major themes for John. So he's basically just kind of putting these together. John is showing us that the true source of life is found in Jesus, who is the incarnate word, and the more that we read about Jesus in his word, the more life that we have in our own lives. Now thirdly, we see that Jesus is the life manifested, or he is the one who is displayed or seen or known. Verse two there. Now, now John is getting right at the incarnation here. He's going right at his opponents, the Gnostics here, and he's saying, look, the incarnation was real. Jesus was fully God. He was fully man. Jesus walked around. He ate. He told stories. He slept. He laughed. And we saw it all. Okay, so you cannot deny that Jesus was not fully man and fully God. This is such a big deal for John that uh, even in the second letter, in verse seven, uh, he says this. He says, many deceivers have gone out into the world, men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Okay, there's something about, for John, this emphasis that Jesus really was human, he was really God, and that enables us to connect with God in a unique way. You know, I think of Hebrews chapter four, where the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way that you and I are, and so that he's able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. And so if you're a Gnostic, or if you believe in Gnosticism, you kind of take away the reality of our high priest who looks at the things that you and I go through, and he says, I know what that's like. Like, that would dramatically change the kind of God that we believe in. A fourth description here, the last one I'll point out, is that Jesus is the eternal life. Okay, this is in verse three. That Jesus gives life, he gives life to the fullest, he gives life forever and ever. We looked at this uh, theme last week on Easter in chapter five, uh, verses 11 and 12. He says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. We looked at last week how this eternal life is life with no sin, no shame, no guilt, no pain. It is life forever and ever with Jesus. It is everlasting joy, and Jesus is the source of eternal life. Now, Jesus, or John is beginning this letter highlighting who Jesus is, that eternal life is found in Jesus because he is saying not every Jesus that is presented is the saving Jesus. 
that the Gnostic version of Jesus is not the saving Jesus who wants to separate Jesus' humanity from his divinity. But the saving Jesus is the one who has always existed and who will always exist. He is the one who has existed with the Father, who came down, who put on real flesh, lived a sinless, perfect life, lived out the word of God perfectly, and got up on a cross and died in the place of sinners. Not only that, but three days later, he resurrected, came back to life, and now makes eternal life possible for all who believe. Look, we celebrated that last week. John's emphasizing that because that forms the foundation of the kind of fellowship that we are to have with other believers. So if we're supposed to have this type of connection and community with other Christians, that is Jesus-centered, John's like, make sure you have the right Jesus. Make sure you have the one that has always existed and who is fully God and fully man, not the Gnostic version of Jesus. Look, I love this because John can claim that this is actually true because he was a real eyewitness. Look, he, John was there. He saw Jesus. He had his experiential knowledge as he's writing this. He's like, we saw Jesus. We talked with Jesus. We heard him talk and teach. We felt him. Look, we were there when he took five loaves of bread and two fish and fed thousands of people. Like we were there when he walked on water and calmed the storms. We were there when he commanded the demons and the demons submitted and obeyed to him. We were there when when Jesus opened the eyes of the blind, when he healed the lame, when he rebuked the the self-righteous. Look, we witnessed all of that and we were changed when he welcomed outsiders and he forgave the worst of sinners and he loved those that were far from him. John's feet were literally washed by this Jesus that he claims to be true. And John saw him get up on a cross and die in his place. Like this is, this is how he's beginning this whole thing. He's laying the foundation because he's like, man, I was there, I saw it all, and I am an eyewitness. Now, you have to ask the question, why start this way? Like we know, we know the purpose. We looked at last week, he's trying to give assurance so, so why give kind of a basic Christology 101 class for us in the first couple of verses? What, what, is the, what is John trying to get at? Well, if you're reading this and studying this, and John is laying out the fact that here's who Jesus really is, and we've experienced him, and we've been so changed by him that according to verse two, we proclaim him to others, then it puts the question right in front of us, have you? Have you experienced him? Do you, do you know this Jesus? Have you been changed by Jesus like we have where you're proclaiming and testifying about him with others? See, this isn't just a random beginning to some letter about Jesus and about experiencing Jesus. We are confronted with the question, have you experienced Jesus to such a degree that your life is dramatically different now because you know him? Not just facts and knowledge about him, but do you really know Jesus? The difference is everything. Remember in the fifth grade, uh, my teacher had, uh, had us do these reports on, they called them MVP, most valuable people. And we had to pick 
uh, a celebrity or someone that was popular that has had an impact on your life. And so for me, really big into basketball, I chose David Robinson. And David Robinson's a Christian. He played for the San Antonio Spurs. And, and so I did a bunch of research on David Robinson. Went to a, uh, my first NBA game, played the Cavaliers, and I was ready for this presentation. And so I got up in front of the class and I presented, I think flawlessly, on David Robinson. I mean, I had every statistic, every date nailed down. I had pictures. I, man, I, I talked with such confidence uh, about David Robinson. And so I, I gave my presentation, I sat down, and my teacher said something that, uh, that really has marked me as, as far as what it means to be a follower of Jesus. She said, Chris, you really know David Robinson. And, and I said, I, I think so. Like, I know a bunch of facts about him. And she says, yeah, you, you clearly talked with confidence about him, like you get an A. And, and I, I think about that, and that, came, that story came to my mind as I was thinking about First John and knowing Jesus, because for me, like in fifth grade, I knew a bunch of facts about David. I didn't really know David Robinson. Like, I, I don't know what his favorite sub is. I don't know what type of cologne he wears or, or his greatest fears. I, I, don't, I never really had a conversation with David Robinson, and yet my teacher thinks that I know him. Look, the reality is, is that there are many people who claim to know Jesus Christ, and yet they don't really know him. They claim to have a bunch of facts and knowledge about Jesus, and yet they, they have not been changed by Jesus. They have not had a, a conversation about Jesus where their affections have been changed and the way that they live their life has been changed. They look at Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, they think, oh, that was cool, but it hasn't really marked them and changed them. See, what John is laying out for us is that Jesus is so good, he's so life-changing, he's, he's so satisfying that he will change you if you really have experienced him. And so the question that he answers for the rest of this letter is, how do you know? How do you know if you really know who Jesus is? So John says all of this about Jesus he emphasizes the fact that he's experienced him. And then you get to verse three, and this is what I wanna highlight for us for the rest of our time. If you notice at the end of verse three, there is an important phrase that starts with the words, so that. Now, whenever you see so that throughout John's writings, you need to circle it, you need to underline it, you need to highlight it, because John, most of the time, is about to give a purpose clause. He's about to explain why all of what he has just written is actually important and significant. Okay, this is, this is total John. John's building, 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 and then he goes, so that, and then he tells you why it's important. So verse three talks about Jesus experiencing Jesus, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son Jesus. Okay, or you can say it this way. You can put it this way. He says, if, um, since our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, you and I must have fellowship with one another. So there's something about Jesus, about experiencing Jesus, being changed by Jesus, that actually leads to fellowship with other believers. You see John's logic there? It's like if you believe in him, you then will have fellowship with others, and that is a sign that you are truly a Christian. 
In fact, verse four, he'll say, he's writing all these things so that our joy may be complete, that there's a type of fellowship with other believers that actually impacts your joy and the joy of others. Now let's dial into this concept of fellowship for just a moment. This word fellowship in the Greek, this is koinonia. It is a personal experience of sharing something significant in common with others. This is the pleasure that you kind of experience when you're with a group of people and you see eye to eye on what really matters. It's having similar values and responding with the same kind of affections to what really counts. I think this fellowship is what gives root and fruit to Christian marriages and Christian friendships and Christian communities because it's centered on Jesus. It's delighting on Jesus with other people. It's sharing what you're learning about Jesus with those that you're in fellowship with. It's even sharing ways that you're falling short of following Jesus and and sharing your doubts and sharing your struggles and your sins with those people, knowing that they're gonna lift you up and point you to Jesus. Now, this is important because there are all kinds of different fellowships that we can have in this life. You can have fellowships with a coworker about work. You can have fellowships with people in your life stage about the particular life stage that you're in. You can have a fellowship with somebody that shares the same hobby or you root for the same sports team. And those are good, those are healthy to have. And yet there's only one kind of fellowship that John would say gives you assurance of your salvation. And it is a Jesus-centered fellowship. It's a type of fellowship where you're not just talking about Jesus with others, but you're actually experiencing Jesus with others. See, even the Gnostics could talk about Jesus with them. Unbelievers can talk about Jesus. But when you are experiencing the beauty and the power of Jesus with other believers in this type of fellowship, that is a sign that you are a follower of Jesus. Look, and this is why uh, belong is such an important concept at College Park Fishers. This is why belong is part of our threefold strategy as a church, that we have belong, grow, and multiply that we want you to belong here at College Park Fishers by regularly attending worship on Sundays, just as you are here today. That it says something about you spiritually if your attendance is irregular. That if you kind of miss several weeks, it says something about your relationship with the Lord. We want you to belong here. We want you to belong here in membership, where you say, I belong to this group of believers in kind of an official way. And we also want you to belong Uh, in small groups. And we believe small groups is not the only way to live out verse three, but it is an important way and an important environment to experience deep fellowship of life change in Jesus with other believers. This is why we would love for every uh, follower of Jesus in our church to be part of a small group. This is why 92% of our members are in small groups because you believe in this and you you want community and you want this kind of fellowship at our church. And yet I will say that small groups can be messy. Like when you have a group of sinners who regularly gather together, it's gonna get a little messy, right? We're stumbling after Jesus together. There's gonna be some sins. But that is honest, that's the beauty of small groups, 
that you're in small groups because you are declaring, I belong to this group of people. I belong to these believers who are going to help me pursue the Lord Jesus. That small groups are important because look, when you're spiritually dry, when you're going through doubts, when you're unsure if you're saved, like that small group is there as a gift from God who loves you and trusts you and knows you that can point to evidence of God's grace in your life. Like small groups is a huge way that God brings assurance and confidence in the Lord. It is the place that we share what we are learning about Jesus. And even when you think about it on the flip side, like if you're a, a lone ranger Christian, number one, I don't see that in the New Testament. That's kind of a contradiction. But number two, if you're a lone ranger Christian where you're not experiencing deep fellowship with other believers, who has permission in your life to ask you the hard questions? Who, who's going to encourage you when you're down? Who's going to lift you when you're wrestling with the assurance of your salvation? Look, if no one immediately comes to mind, John would question if you really have experienced the word of life. So look, this morning, where, where do you go if you aren't sure that you belong to Jesus? What do you do when you're wrestling with these kinds of questions? Do you look inward? Do you start to think, man, did I pray that prayer correctly? Do I, do I attend church enough? Do I, do I read my Bible consistently? See, John would say, no, 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 don't just look there, but ask the brothers and sisters in Christ who know you and who you trust to be able to say, hey, is my, is my claim of Christ real and genuine? Do, do you see evidence in my walk with Jesus? Do we have fellowship with one another? See, being in fellowship with others is a gift and a significant way that we can have assurance. Look, if you're in a small group, let me just talk to you for just a moment. I just want to remind you that in your small group, those are the people that you belong to. Like those are the people that you have this kind of fellowship with. And so I just want to encourage you, take that seriously. Like value trust, value transparency, value that type of gift from God, that environment where you can work out your salvation in fear and trembling in the safety of other believers. That is the place where you share, this is where I've been experiencing Jesus lately. That is the place where you can even affirm the grace of God in others. I just wanna encourage you, if you're in a small group, don't settle for just talking about non-spiritual matters. Get to Jesus. Talk about how you're learning and experiencing Jesus with other people. And furthermore, let me just challenge you this morning. When you see evidence of God at work in those in your small group, point it out. Encourage them. Be specific. Because look, your encouragement of how you see God at work in another is a consistent instrument of God that he uses to bring assurance in other people's lives. So don't, don't hesitate. Don't, don't feel like it's weird to compliment another believer about God's grace that you see in their lives. Because small groups, that, we think that is the vehicle that God has given us to remind each other that I belong to Christ and I also belong to you. So that you can experience the reality of verse four, that your joy may be complete and it may be full. 
more than 350 years ago, and I'll close with this. Thomas Brooks, who was an English Puritan preacher and author, wrote this about the doctrine of assurance. He says, the being in a state of grace makes one's condition happy, safe, and sure. But the seeing and the knowing of himself to be in such a state is that which renders his life sweet and comfortable. Look, there is a difference between being saved and knowing that you are saved. That you could be safe, but maybe unsure that you're saved, and yet you can have full confidence and assurance that you are in Christ and that there's nothing that can take that away. And I want you to know this morning that part of being in fellowship with other believers is to remind you of that beautiful reality because sometimes we go through life and we go through temptations and we go through struggles and the doubts come and the questions come and we just need a brother and sister in Christ to remind us of who we are in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the church. We thank you that you have bought the church with your own blood. And God, you have created this institution called the church and you've created us not to just live uh, lives in kind of a superficiality manner, but to live a life that is sharing what we are learning about you with others. So God, would you help us not to settle for surface level fellowship, but God, give us a fellowship that is Jesus-centered, that is being shaped by the gospel. Lord, help us to crave those types of relationships and friendships with other believers so that when we're wrestling with our faith, we can be reminded of what you have done for us on the cross. And so God, I pray for those this morning that are kind of traveling the Christian life alone and isolated. God, I pray that you would encourage them today to take that step, that, that hard and difficult step, to be in community and fellowship with others. We pray in Jesus' name.